So before we read our sermon text, which is Matthew 6.10, I'd like us to turn in the same gospel to chapter 16, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 19, and then I've decided also to add verses 24 through 28, and then we'll turn to Matthew 6, verse 10. So please stand. So Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19 and 24 through 28. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Skipping down to verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And now turning back to chapter 6. Now I'll start at verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we are children of the living God, and we come, each and every one of us, with a childlike simplicity of faith, intent upon only one thing, and that is to hear your revealed will proclaimed and spoken to us, and spoken to us in such a way that it it truly can only be explained as a work of your Spirit as you teach us again, perhaps even these words that are so familiar to us, but we have perhaps not understood their depth or their implications or their importance to us as believers. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us in these things. There are so many concerns of the former week that plague our minds, so many distractions, so many noble and good things and responsibilities. 
But now only one thing is necessary. And so, like our sister Mary, help us to sit at the feet of the Savior and to learn of him and to take hold of that one thing necessary that cannot be taken from us, namely Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So June 6, 1944, it's called D-Day. I think it was also called Operation Overload. Ask one of the military people here, they'll know. Um, But it's when the Allied forces landed uh, in France in order to begin the liberation of occupied Europe. That was the whole idea. And that battle, the Battle of Normandy, was was incredibly costly. Um, It took a a tremendous toll in terms of casualties and the loss of, of human life. Very, very costly. But it is a fact that once that beachhead was secured, the war had been decided. Once that, that battlefront, that beachfront, had, had been secured by the Allied forces, the war had been decided. But it was not done. There would be tremendous life loss to come. There would be a tremendous heartache and, and sorrow to come. The end was certain, but it was not concluded. The Allied, advance, the Allied forces would continue to advance and, and push back the Axis forces. It was, it was in principle, it was, it was decided, but it was not done. It's Gerhardus Voss who uses this image to suggest that's where the church is right now. The church, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church, the kingdom of Christ has been securely established. It advances and it, and it presses forward and it pushes back the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of of darkness. The war is decided, but the battle is not yet done. And that's why we fight. And that's why we pray. And that's why we pray like this. And this is that small petition that's found in the Lord's Prayer, the second one, technically. And it is vital. It is vital for us to pray like this and to understand this petition and for this to be on a regular basis upon our lips and our hearts And to have this mindset when it comes to prayer. And so this morning, that's what we're going to be doing is looking at this particular petition. What does it teach us about how we ought to pray? Now, what it introduces is the idea of the kingdom of God. And this is the very first thing that's upon the lips of Christ. He comes preaching about the kingdom of God. He mentions this over a hundred times in the Gospels. It's clearly an important concept to him. So much of his Ministry is taken up with explaining this. In Mark 1, verse 14, the very first chapter of a gospel, it says, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he comes preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. There's some scholars who would tell you that the parables are chiefly really about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it's exactly what we hear from him. He says, the kingdom of God, it is upon you. It is among you, it is near you, or he says, or you're not far from the kingdom. It is in you and you are in it. And he says to enter the kingdom of God uh, that can only happen by being born again or by receiving it like a child. And to be fit for it, you have to put your hand to the plow and not look over your shoulder, so on and so forth. We could say all these things about all he says about the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is nobody ever stops him and says, What are you talking about? What is the kingdom? What is this idea of the kingdom? They ask him questions about the nature 
of the kingdom and who's in the kingdom and things like that, but nobody ever stops and says, this is a completely foreign concept. It's not a foreign concept. Oh, Israel had known this since the prophets. And speaking of this one who would take up the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, like Isaiah says in chapter 9, and other prophecies too, this would have been something that was of no surprise to them. And so when Christ says to his disciples, you need to pray, your kingdom come, it's not a foreign concept. But there's a lot in it that would have been foreign, but not just them to us. So what is this kingdom? Well, we could speak in different terms here. We could speak of the kingdom of grace or the kingdom of Christ. I like to call it the kingdom of Christ. And so we have to start with this king. And it's not as if this king lands upon this world and he's welcomed warmly, receives no opposition, there's no adversary against him, everybody is for him. That's not what happens at all. As soon as he lands, he's opposed and he finds himself even born in difficult circumstances and he is opposed by the prince of darkness. This is true even in his life, his very birth, that Satan tried to kill the baby Jesus through the actions of King Herod. It's a despicable thing. It's a bloodthirsty thing that we read in Scripture. That was all intent upon taking down this, this Jesus. In the temptations, it says that Satan showed Jesus the kingdoms of the world. He said, I'll give these all to you. I can do that. If you will worship me, immediately Christ is, is confronted by this. And throughout his ministry, what is he doing? He's overcoming Satan's rule, casting out demons who, are, who know exactly who he is and say, have you come to torture us before the time? In Matthew 12, Christ says, if by the spirit of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The 72 return to him rejoicing and saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is Christ doing? What are his disciples doing? They're binding the strong man. They're raiding his house. It's just like the winter of Narnia that began to thaw at the mere appearance of Aslan. And here is the appearance of the Son of Man. And left and right, he is taking on and advancing over the kingdom of Satan, liberating those who had been captive to him and to his cruelty in body and soul. Even as we think about his death, even here is a point where it would be perceived as a vulnerability to the world, but actually it's his exercising his power in overcoming Satan. As Christ said that the cross is the hour that belongs to the power of darkness. That's the appearance of things. But it's really the fulfillment of the plan of God where Satan is just a pawn and, and being defeated, as Colossians 2 says, that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, through the cross, or Hebrews 2. Through death, Christ has destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, here is this open public statement that Christ has defeated not just sin, not just Satan, but he has defeated the last enemy of death. It's now Christ who rises in victory and he holds in his hands the keys of death. And just like D-Day, as we think of all of this work of Christ, it was incredibly costly. But it secured the liberty of all those who had been held captive. And so Christ builds his church and he establishes his kingdom. Now, we would put it this way, that when Christ is raised from the dead and he ascends to sit at the right hand 
of majesty, his saving rule begins. The king of kings inaugurates his rule. And this is in fulfillment of scripture. Psalm 110 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Christ was speaking of this in the passage we read. He says, I will build my church. He will. And he does it as the one who is seated and ensconced in, in ascended glory at the right hand of God with everything under his feet, all his enemies. This is the one who rules all things seen and unseen. He does so for the express purpose of his church, as he says in Ephesians 1, that he will build his church, his kingdom. Now, how is he doing this? Well, he does it through the preaching of the word. This is how Christ expands his kingdom. He begins with 12 men, 12 men, and says, you'll be my witnesses, not just here, but around the world. And God has been calling men and women by his word and his spirit, gathering them to himself. And what is he doing? Scripture tells us he's delivering them from the kingdom of darkness and transposing them, bringing them into the kingdom of light. He does it through the preaching of the word. Think of the sacraments. This is how God builds up his kingdom. What does baptism signify? It signifies that we have entered into the king's dominion. We are his. And what is the Lord's Supper? It confirms that we've come under the king's protection, sealed by his spirit. He builds his kingdom through discipline, the keys of the kingdom. We were just reading this in Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever... You bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is how he purifies the kingdom. It's through the power of the keys that the church declares the will of God. This is what Christ wants. This is what the great king wants his subjects to do. And it does so with his authority. It does so with his power. And so what does the church do? The church admonishes. It exhorts. It warns. It rebukes. But it also encourages and comforts and consoles and declares the promises of Christ. And through that preaching of the word, it's the spirit of God that convicts us of our sin, but comforts us through Christ our Savior who deals with that sin. It's the Holy Spirit through that word that he opens and he closes ears and eyes and hearts. And this is how he continues to to build up his church so that all those who have been destined for eternal life are brought in. And all those who are brought in are kept in, as we read in the shorter catechism. This is how the kingdom of grace grows. This is how... The kingdom of Christ grows and expands throughout all the world. This is how Christ is calling to himself those who were formerly in bondage to sin. That were under the hand of Satan. And he calls them out of the world into his kingdom of grace. He calls them from all the peoples of the world to be his one true people. All the, from all the nations to be that one nation of God. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1 says. And we need this perspective. We need this daily mindset that you and I are caught up in an invisible spiritual battle that that cuts right down through the middle of the universe between two sides. And we're caught up in it. We're, We're a part of that. And it's a battle. It's a terrible battle. It's about life and death. And we are to wake up every day with with these words upon our minds about his kingdom and the state of that kingdom, how we need to be praying for it. This this is a militant prayer. Later on, he'll talk about 
not to be allowed to be delivered over to temptation, but to deliver us from evil. And some would say that could be translated, deliver us from the evil one. That's a lawful interpretation. I like the one we have better because it includes all of it. Not just evil, but the evil one. It's a militant prayer. It's all about being a soldier in this great battle. The Christ is building his church, but it is greatly opposed. But he defends his kingdom as we read in these words in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The kingdom of God is established in hostile territory. It is opposed everywhere. There is no place in this earth where the kingdom of Christ is not opposed. Fiercely, violently. And every soul that is born in this world is under the rule of a cruel tyrant until it is set free. And every soul that is born again is snatched from the clutches of that tyrant and is hated by that tyrant until their last breath. And his every intent is to destroy, not merely to agree to disagree. It is to destroy, to devour, and to ruin. That's our enemy. And yet this church is advancing, taking its fight to Satan. In the wider scheme of things, the kingdom of Satan is losing its spiritual ground. It's a retreating force, but as some who have studied war can tell you, it's a retreating force that does more violence than an advancing force. This is not a compassionate foe. And the demise of Satan's kingdom is sure. He knows that the battle is lost. He knows that. But Christ continues to build his church. He continues to subdue and he continues to vanquish until he comes again. This is a great comfort to us. But we also have to remember this. It's Christ who said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. You can't think of this kingdom in the way that you think of other kingdoms. This kingdom has a different agenda, has different goals, has a different purpose. It, it originates from a different place. Its epicenter is in a different place. And it has a different king. What you think about other kingdoms, you cannot associate with this kingdom. What you think of other kings... This king is different. This king is totally different. This is a king who bows down and washes the feet of his subjects, which is a mild gesture and picture of how he'll wash away their sins. This is a king who takes the condemnation of his people upon himself, sacrifices himself for them in order to set them free in order to forgive them, in order to make them acceptable, in order to love them and to sanctify them and to glorify them and to make them fit for heaven. And this is a king that sits not in some throne on earth. He sits at the right hand of majesty and in rules and in infinite and eternal supremacy. But he takes all of his almighty strength, all of his wisdom, all of his love is directed towards one purpose and is to give his subjects life an abundant life, an eternal life, and eternal blessings. There is no king like this king. There is no kingdom like this kingdom. This war, it's not done, but it is decided. It's not concluded, but it is certain. And so we need to pray. We need to pray that this kingdom of Christ would continue to advance and that the kingdom of darkness would be destroyed. 
But we also need to praise something else. Because we've not said the last word about this kingdom, because we need to think about the kingdom of glory, the kingdom of heaven. And we need to pray for it to come or hasten. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. The Son of Man is coming in his kingdom. And we seize upon that. We seize upon his promise, I am coming soon, to which we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. And we pray that way. We pray accordingly. We're waiting for this kingdom of grace to blossom into something fuller, into the kingdom of glory. We're waiting for the church of Jesus Christ to be graduated out of this church militant into a church triumphant. Thomas Watson put it this way, the kingdom of grace is glory in the seed. The kingdom of glory is grace in the flower. It's the same kingdom, but it's a kingdom glorified. And this king will continue to rule us. He will continue to protect us until he comes. And until he comes, his promise is that our sin will not overthrow us. Our temptations will not overrun us. This world will not overpower us. He will come and he's going to bring into completion the good thing that he already began in you. That's his promise. At the present, we do not see all of that. We don't see everything subject to Christ, but we will. When Christ come, he will put every last enemy under his feet forever. When Christ comes, he will not come in humiliation. He will not come in the appearance of weakness. He will come in power and glory. And that's when the kingdom of Satan will end. We read these words in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's this wider context where Paul is defending the resurrection. And yet when he speaks at the very end, he has these words. He says, then comes the end. And he means the end of the end. When Christ delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that's the day we look forward to. There's some in this room who were alive on Victory Day and rejoiced. Rejoiced that the war was done, that bloodshed was coming to an end, that wicked had had been overcome. And what we look forward to is injustice and misery and cruelty and pain and suffering coming to an end. All these things that belong to the kingdom of Satan. It's a day of wrath when Christ will avenge his evil, when he will triumph over all of his enemies. And just as the Lord threw the horse and the rider into the sea, we read that Satan and the beast will be thrown into the lake of fire. That just as the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he will destroy sin and death and the kingdom of darkness will be crushed under his heel and the accuser will be thrown down. We long for that day. We long for this evil and this hard world to come to an end when it comes to such things. But you see here again, that's where this this petition gives us perspective, that we need this perspective that there's only one eternal kingdom. All other kingdoms of this world will pass away. But there's only one kingdom that will last. And it's in that kingdom that Christ will be vindicated and acknowledged and worshipped and exalted by the nations. It's only then that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. It's only then that God's people will openly acknowledge and acquitted and raised to eternal glory and eternal blessedness. 
when he brings to completion what he has begun and what he's established. It's on that day that the gates of heaven will swing wide open to gather people from every tribe and language and people and nation when he will gather those from the north and the south and the east and the west to take their place and sit at that wedding feast of the Lamb. When nations will become his inheritance and the ends of the earth become his possession and he will reign forever and ever. And you and I will be with Christ, glorified with Christ. We will reign with Christ. We will be with him forever and ever because that is a kingdom that will never pass away and never end. Prophesied long ago by Daniel as he spoke to a great king, Nebuchadnezzar. He says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It is a kingdom cut from the rock, but not by the hands of men. Brothers and sisters, that day a voice, the voice of God will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And Hebrews tells us, therefore, let us rejoice that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken like all the kingdoms of men. And on that day, we will see the King of Kings, this almighty Lord of Lords that we confess even now, but we will not just see him, we will hear him. And he will say this, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. There's no other kingdom that can offer eternal life in the presence of God. Because there's no other king that can guarantee such eternal blessings. Only the king of kings can promise these things. Because in the end, there is no other king. There's no other savior. There's no other life. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we may be saved. There's no other love. There's no other hope. There is no other kingdom. And that's why we pray. That's why we pray. The war is decided, but it's not done. The end is certain but it is not concluded. That's why we need to be a praying church. We need to be a fighting church. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we thank you for our Savior's instruction here in his his counsel that is more than wisdom itself. It is a perfect, perfect wisdom that we need to hear And that we need to obey and do. We need to pray. Your kingdom come. Father, help us in this. But we pray too that you would comfort us by these words. That we do not pray in vain. We pray to the one who hears his people, who loves his people, who accepts them. Who hears their prayers and answers their prayers. And the one who hears these prayers. Is not just our great high priest or a prophet. He is the king of kings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.